New York City is layered in history. Behind every brownstone, or gravestone for that matter, is a story. A story about lives lived and lost, some tragically or under other macabre circumstances. That's where Andrea James comes in. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Andrea is the founder of Burroughs of the Dead Macabre New York City Walking Tours. She knows all about the horror and scandals that haunt New York City's past. I recently caught up with Andrea at her home in Brooklyn. So let's start off with a little game of coincidence or not, okay? Okay. So coincidence or not, you live just a few blocks away from Greenwood Cemetery. Coincidence? Fate? I don't know. Um, I would like to think it's fate, personally. Um, and not at all coincidence. Everything happens for a reason, and there are no coincidences. How much time do you spend at the cemetery? Well, I I used to treat it as my own personal backyard, um, and I would just traipse around in there for hours and hours, and I, I spent probably like three or four hours a, a month maybe even more, like my high point. Um, nowadays, I'm so busy, I, I don't have as much time to spend there. But I am actually going there right after this interview to do a little research on some interesting figures I found there. So, Hmm, do tell. Can you tell? <laughs> well, it's, it's still a little bit top secret, but I have discovered um, some very scandalous and, and controversial figures um, in Greenwood. So I'm, I'm going to go and check them out and, and see if they fit the theme of the tour, which is uh, murder, mayhem, scandal, and spiritualism. And, um, you know, what we try and do is construct a sort of alternate reality of 19th century New York. Like we take the idea of Gilded Age New York, which is all, you know, um, sort of like a wash with, with beauty and Beaux-Arts buildings and, and pro, you know, progressive reform. And it's like this this um, A story of New York. And we kind of dig into the B sides where we find all the, the tabloid fodder and the scandals and the weird little footnotes of history. A girl called the Brooklyn Enigma, who was just like this quasi-anorexic who stayed in bed for nine years reading fortunes and became something of a celebrity. How do you discover <laughs> these stories? Um, well, the Brooklyn Enigma I found on an old Greenwood map. Um, but in general, you know, when you're a tour guide or a history nerd in general, you know, you, you just kind of... It's, everything's fodder. Like every book you read, you know, you're always dog-earing pages if you're a bad person and you destroy books or you're using a nice reusable sticky note or whatever. However you do it, you know, every time you read anything, any source material, you see something on television, whatever, hear it on the radio, um, it just like, it grabs you. And then you go down the rabbit hole with that one person or that one thing. Um, and then you find yourself strangely compelled. Um, I find myself compelled by, you know, any tale of murder um, <laughs> with a mysterious woman, um, either at its center, victim or perpetrator. Um, true crime in general, especially in the 19th century, is always fascinating. Are you familiar with the murder that happened on Bond Street? Because I understand they are buried at Greenwood. I'm fascinated by that murder. And yes, absolutely, it's on my tour. Um, Give us the background. The background is amazing. So there's this dentist named Harvey Burdell. Harvey Burdell was this wealthy dentist who lived on Bond Street, which is then is now a very fashionable area in NoHo. And um, so he had this kind of really sweet setup where he owned an entire townhouse and he had his dentist's office on the first floor and then he lived in the rest of the, you know, you wouldn't be out of place to call it a mansion. Like it was a huge three-story townhouse. Anyway, so um, he was a little bit of a shady character. He would, he was not above trading dentistry work for sexual favors if you were young and pretty and female. So he, he did that. Um, and then one day in the 1850s, he met this woman named Emma Cunningham, 
who was, you know, she had designs on him. She was a widow, but she was only 34 years old. You know, she still had a lot of life in her. Um, she was described as handsome. She was quite vivacious and, and charming by all accounts. She had three children to support, and, uh, you know, she didn't really want to do it on a widow's pension, so she kind of tries to dig her claws into Harvey Burdell. She's like, oh, wealthy dentist, you know, I got it made. And he, you know, after they have a dalliance up in Saratoga Springs, uh, which is like the Hamptons of 19th century New York, they um, come back to the city and he's like, well, summer's over, affair's over, bye. And, you know, she's totally upset. She feels cheated out of what she considers rightfully hers. And the worst part is he invites her to live with him as his housekeeper. And she's just like... All right, uh, so she bides her time, and then, you know, eventually, as a scorned woman may do, she uh, brutally murders him in his own dentist chair. She, like, garrets him and stabs him multiple times until the room is awash with blood, and, like, his poor assistant, helper boy, his chore boy, <laughs> discovers him, um, you know, in the morning, I think it's, like, in January of 1857, so he finds him there one morning when he comes to open the office. Anyway, Emma is like summarily put on trial for this. And the most amazing thing is this is a good story so far. What happens at the trial and beyond is even more insane. Yeah, it was the trial of the century. Mm -hmm. One of many trials of the century. They had them like every decade, right? But like it was huge and it's still completely mind blowing. Um, And one of the best parts is the best little button on this story is that they're buried like less than a quarter mile away from each other within Greenwood Cemetery. Was she convicted? Um, She was acquitted on the charge of murder, but later she was convicted of the charge of fraud for a a little trick she tried to pull that amuses me greatly, and I tell more about it on the tour itself. Coincidentally, that murder happened just pretty much around the corner from the Merchant's House Museum, Mm -hmm. which claims to be the most Mm -hmm. haunted house in all of Manhattan, if not all of New York City, right? Um, It has definitely a good claim on that. Uh, There are certainly other contenders. The Morris Jumel Mansion springs to mind, but uh, the Merchant's House is absolutely one of the most haunted places, and it's haunted, I think, by several members of the original family who lived there. And I also personally think that their servants haunt it as well. So um, I... What makes you think that? Okay, this is going to sound so um, flaky, but I think you can kind of feel them a little bit. Um, The first time I went to the merchant's house, I found myself compelled to two places in the house, the upper story and the kitchen. And the upper story had not yet been opened. It ended on, I believe it was the third floor, and there was a glass display case discussing the servants' lives. And I was drawn there, and I was drawn to the kitchen. Later on, they opened up the servants' quarters, and they're open now. And you can go and visit them. And I'm still drawn to these two parts of the house, and I feel like a very strong... I hate to say energy because it's so cliched, but there's a, there's like a vortex of emotion that is in these two places. And I, I do think there are still family members who are hanging around, absolutely. But there's a very, very strong feeling. Um, and when you think about a ghost, okay, so I find the idea of a ghost as simply the shade of a dead person who died in a certain spot and now they haunt it. I find that a very pat and unsatisfying answer. When I think of a ghost, I think there's, um, I'm more of like a residual energy kind of person. And I do subscribe to the theory that there is a connection between the intensity of a lived experience in a certain location and subsequent residual energy that lingers there. Can that form into an apparition? 
Um, well, that's a really interesting question. I don't think I could answer that definitively. I don't have the knowledge. And in a sense, that's knowledge almost nobody can possess. You know, it's like, have you died and come back? I don't know. Um, but I guess a question could be, have you ever seen a ghost? <laughs> right. right. So I personally have never had what they call an apparitional experience. Um, but I do think that there are people who have seen apparitions. There are people who have gone on record as having seen apparitions in the merchant's house. And they have no motivation for, for saying this. There's, they're getting nothing out of it. Um, and they're very respectable people who weren't primed in a sense. They didn't go to the house to experience something. They were average tourists coming for the history um, and educated people. I think one woman who reported a really great story was a doctor from Nova Scotia. And she had an experience where she saw the apparition of, I believe it was Samuel Treadwell, one of the younger brothers of the family. So can that energy, if it is intense enough, resolve itself into something that is visible? Yes, certainly. That would you know logically work with my theory. And also there's a degree of sensitivity that the receiver has to possess as well, right? The idea of clairvoyance. Um, and there are certainly people who can stand in a room and see nothing and they're standing right next to somebody who's getting a tableau vivant or, well, not vivant, but, you know, a tableau of something that's happening there and they, they're privy to it all. And another person is insensitive and can't see it. So um, I, would, I would say arguably yes, depending on how much you believe in the subjective experience of the receiver. You mentioned the Morris Jumel Mansion. What's the story there? The Morris Jumel Mansion in Washington Heights has a fascinating history, just non-spectral history, dating back to the Revolutionary War. Um, it's one of these, like, Washington slept here kind of houses with a legitimate claim to that. Where things get really interesting is in the early 1800s where a woman named Eliza Jumel moves in. And she moves in with her husband, Stephen Jumel. He is a merchant, and he's fairly well off. She uh, manages the household finances quite brilliantly, and in her widowhood, she manages to parlay her inheritance into a substantial fortune. She becomes one of the wealthiest women in Manhattan. So you would think, like, she's got all kinds of New Yorkers coming to, to fet her and have dinners with her, and who wouldn't want to go to the wealthy woman's mansion? Well, nobody wanted to go because she had a very shady past. She was an actress before she married Stephen Jumel. She was an of New York society. She was a totally unknown woman from Rhode Island, I believe. And of course, her connection to the stage, even though I think her connection to the stage in reality was nothing more than like her having a couple gigs as an extra in the Park Theater. But you know, that, that kind of thing will tarnish your reputation forever, especially in New York society in the you know, turn of the 19th century, which was very small very gossipy and um, pretty judgy, evidently. So, you know, at a certain point, like her husband, Stephen Jamel, he was of French extraction and they had gone to France for a while and she was a big pretender and she came back with these claims of having, uh, you know, dined with Napoleon and such. Um, anyway, like no one bought it and they were all like, no, and she was shunned by society. So what she ends up doing in her older years is she kind of desperately marries, of all people, Aaron Burr. And it's, you know, said that she marries him for the cachet of being married to the former vice president, but that's a little odd because he was disgraced already by that point. This is like in the 1820s, I think. So he's already like, you know, his name is Mud. Like, you kill Alexander Hamilton, like, yeah, yeah you're, out. <laughs> you're out. Regardless, so she marries him. It's a disaster. They end up divorcing and they both die pretty quickly thereafter. He dies almost, I think, as soon as the divorce is finalized. Some say on the same day, although that's up for debate. Um, and she doesn't live very long after that. I mean, she was pretty old already. So they're, they had this like desperate, sad, late life marriage. And the whole thing ends up, you know, kind of giving the house this like patina of 
sadness, of isolation. There's a great sense of ownership because Eliza Jamel imbued so much of her character and her tastes into the house, you know, with each piece of wallpaper she selected with each item of furniture. And this is the same phenomenon I believe is happening in the merchant's house where you have an extremely strong emotional connection between the people that lived there, the intensity of their lived experience there, the, the great love they had of that place and, and a connection where the geography and the human meld inextricably. And that's what's, you know, the appeal with the haunted house, right? The haunted house takes on a psychology and the, the windows become eyes and you know it's like it, it the house is the person the person is the house and so when you walk into the merchant's house or when you walk into Morris Jamel you get a sense that you know this house belongs to someone and it's not an anonymous curated museum it's somebody's home and you can practically feel them in there um, if you have a vivid imagination I guess you can feel them but Anyway, I, I do think there's something to those tales, and I, I do feel, again, it always comes back to these women for me, you know, whether they're murderesses or, or ghosts, like it's always this, this, this closeness um, to the place, to the, the woman's life, and I can really, I get such a vivid sense of them, such a lasting impression of them. What inspired your interest in the supernatural and to the macabre? I think I just have always been interested my whole life in ghosts, and I don't know why. Um, I was a very, very small child when I would go down to my big suburban basement and with a little flashlight hunt for ghosts. I don't know what I thought I was doing or what I expected to find. I made a big deal about a playing card once. I wasn't there before. Um, I remember that, but it was kind of a game with me. It was kind of a thrill with me. I just, I loved the idea of ghosts, and there was a a certain spookiness to that basement, even though it was all like modern and built in like 1981. Like I, it felt very ancient to me. Um, I had a little illustrated book. My mother brought me back a book from England and it was illustrated with these really vivid watercolors of ghosts. There was one of like a woman brushing her hair in front of a mirror and then like a filmy hand on her shoulder. And I've never really been able to look in the mirror without expecting a filmy hand. <laughs> That's what happens when you read a book like that when you're eight or 10. Um, I don't know. And, you know, hearing my mom had a funny sense of humor. She would tell us a story about a ghost that was on the toilet. It was the ghost of a baby that sat on the toilet in our downstairs powder room. And I guess she thought this was funny. That'll let your imagination run wild. <laughs> I know. Um, so now that I'm speaking this out loud, I'm assuming there's a hereditary dark streak in my family where we're just like, yeah, we're just a little bit uh, strange that way. How did this all transpire into Burroughs of the Dead, a tour company? It's really something I started to support my writing habit. So I love to write short ghost stories. And uh, this will come as a shock to your audience, but that is not a lucrative trade. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the short story game. Anyway, so I, I've always needed, like, a side gig to support myself. So I'm like, well, what can I do? You know, what skills do I have? And it turned out I was a pretty good ghost tour guide. I had started tour guiding. It's a long story that involves, like, the crash of 2008, me being laid off from a regular office job, me discovering there were a lot of free events in 2009 around the city of New York because it was the quadricentennial of Henry Hudson's exploration of New York. Anyway, so I would go to all these, like, lectures and events and get really nerdy and be like, oh, I love history, and I love weird old Dutch things and lectures about bread, and I was like, this is amazing, and... I want to just do this all the time. So 
I took a tour. I'm going to plug someone who I respect in the industry. His name is Gerald, Jared Goldstein. And I took a tour that Jared Goldstein gave of Lower Manhattan. He was excited and enthusiastic and passionate and held our interest the whole time. And I was like, you're amazing. This is incredible. And you get paid to do this? He's like, oh, yeah, sort of. <laughs> um, so anyway, he's like, you should be a tour guide. And I got the license, got a gig as a food tour guide. I was awful at it. I would take people to Washington Square Park, and they're trying to eat their dosas in peace. And I would just regale them with stories of corpses and hangings. And, and they were just really put off their food. So I was abysmal at that, but I got a gig with one of the other ghost tour companies in town, and I was, you know, I did my first tour one night. It was like 9.30 in Greenwich Village. The tour lasted till 11, and I remember, like, everybody bursting into applause at the end of it, and it was revelatory for me. I was like, this is amazing, <laughs> and I'm getting paid for this, and they tipped me, and I went home, and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so I worked for them for a little while and then I just kept on coming up with like a million other ideas where I was like, it wasn't even strictly ghosts all the time as much as I'm passionate about ghosts and hauntings. There was, you know, the general macabre histories, there was the true crime element. And I was like, you know what? I'm just, just like, gotta let me out of this cage, man. I was like, gotta do my own thing. So, uh, you know, we kind of amicably split. Um, and then I went off and started my own thing and people bought tickets I was very lucky because the year I launched in business, there was a big Edgar Allan Poe exhibit at the Morgan, and so there was a lot of press, and I was I happened to do a Poe tour, because uh, I passionately love Edgar Allan Poe, like the teenage goth who never grew up that I am, and um, I got very lucky and got some press, and people bought tickets, and I did it again, and again, and again, and five years later, I'm still doing it. So it's certainly not like the easiest money. You work really hard for the money I discovered um, because there's so much, you know, it's not the two or four hours a week you're touring. It's like the 40 or 60 hours a week you're like plugging your tour. <laughs> Do your tours mostly appeal to tourists or to locals? That's a really fun thing. It's a cool mix because locals love them. Um, locals especially love the Outer Borough tours, the Astoria one, uh, Roosevelt Island, Brooklyn Heights, Greenwood Cemetery. They love those. Um, and then the tourists sort of focus more on the Greenwich Village ones and the lower Manhattan ones. But there's an even mix, really, in the Manhattan ones. But locals are just, they're thrilled because they, they think it's hilarious. They're like, this is completely insane. I thought it was a Trader Joe's, but it's an old haunted fort. And this is incredible, you know. So um, they love it, and, and I love it. And then tourists, they enjoy it as well because there's a certain kind of tourist who is a compulsive ghost tour taker. And I love them. They're really fun. Whenever they go to a city, they're like, I want to learn about the history of the city. I'm raising my hand. Yes, I'm one of those people. Exactly. Because it's, why do you do it? I do it because I get history that I will not get anywhere else. Exactly. You get like the fun history, like the weird history. It's so good, isn't it? What are some of the titles of your tours? Um, well, our most popular tour is the Ultimate Greenwich Village Ghost Tour. And that is our kind of standard, you know, haunted tour. Then we have the Weird Tales of the West Village, which is also a ghost tour, but it delves a little bit more into, you know, magic and occultism, um, delves a little bit into like the weird literature. Uh, there's some Poe and Lovecraft stuff on that tour. And hence the name Weird Tales. You know, it's a reference to the old pulp magazine. Um, Forgotten Dark Histories of Lower Manhattan spends a lot of time like in colonial era New York, which was just completely violent and strange and awful in so many ways. Um, that's, a, that's a dark and terrible history. 
um, so fun. <laughs> Haunted Brooklyn Heights is just a, a nice little local ghost tour, a lot of lore. There's also some movie and true crime sites on that one. Um, you know, it's like ghostly tales of the, of the Brooklyn Bridge and things like that. Haunting Histories and Legends of Astoria um, also has like a kind of a dark history element to it. A few ghosts as well. Um, and then uh, the Island of Lost Souls is our Roosevelt Island tour. Um, the Island of Lost Souls is subtitled Madness and Medicine on Roosevelt Island. Yeah, Roosevelt Island was a facility basically of hospitals, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You have your smallpox hospital. You have your old insane asylum. You have old laboratories. So it's, you know, we delve into the, the medical history of the city. Um, and we do explore, you know, because we're boroughs of the dead and this interests us, we do explore the connection between um, the idea of an old insane asylum as having some sort of haunted cachet. You know, this is... Uh, it's a reputation that kind of attaches itself to a building like that. Um, so we do discuss the the relationship between these um, places where the undesirables were habitually sent, you know, and um, whether or not there's some psychic connection between the the city's, you know, it, it's like the dirt that was swept under the rug, and how that kind of creeps up psychologically like a repressed memory um, in tales of ghosts and hauntings in these old buildings. Also just like they're so evocative visually as well. The ruins of the smallpox hospital. Um, I think so many New Yorkers when they see them, whether it's from like the FDR or, you know, from the expressway or whether they see them um, up close, you know, it's just, you're just like, what is that? It's this stunning old neo-Gothic edifice. And you're like, this looks so ghostly. So um, that's a, a mix of straight history medical history, and um, a little bit of a foray into the, the idea of a, of a haunted place and metaphorically what that means for a city as well. I would imagine another story you share, although there are no physical reminders that can be told from Roosevelt Island, is the story of the General Slocum, because that disaster happened not far from there on the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we tell the General Slocum story pretty much any time we're near the East River or any time we have an excuse to, um, because it's one of, I think, the most compelling histories um, in New York City. And also, I mean, I personally can't resist a maritime disaster. This was a steamboat. About 1,000 people or Mm 1,000-plus people died? Yeah, about 1,000 people. I think it was the largest peacetime maritime disaster in New York City's history. So uh, the Slocum, and it's also heartbreaking, too, because, so, you know, it's like a pleasure boat. It's this one church. It's like a a Lutheran parish in the East Village. St. Mark's, I think. St. Mark's, yeah. And... um, it's, it's not the St. Mark's in the Bowery, but I think it's like a St. Mark's on like East 7th Street. So anyway, so it's like this one parish, and it's um, a weekday. I think it's like a Wednesday. And all the fathers are at work, you know, and it's all the mothers and children. So it's like a big boat filled with women and children. And it is just like a death trap of a boat. You know, it's not at all up to safety codes. And it bursts into flame just a little bit north of, of Roosevelt Island. And... You know, there's all these stories of like tubercular patients jumping into the water to save these poor drowning women and children. Anyway, um, the, the the part I think that's so heartbreaking is like the idea where at the end of the day all the fathers come home from work and open the door of their apartment and they're like, "Where's everybody?" And everybody's dead. And it's really just like the moment that the heart was ripped out of the East, you know, village German community, and it was just. It was so sad they couldn't go home anymore and be reminded of all those memories. So it was kind of a mass exodus from that neighborhood, really. Um, Now there's just, like, a few memorials and a few, like, 
signs etched in stone in German to remind you like this was once the heart of the German community. But um, yeah, we do tell the story of the General Slocum, which is, you know, that's where Burrows of the Dead starts to straddle this gray area because we're history and we're ghosts. And ghosts are entertaining and fun, but they're also sad. They're really sad. I mean, these are real lives that were lost. And so it's just, you know, that's why we really emphasize the historical part and, and less the sensational part. I mean, yeah, we all like a good thrill at Halloween. But, um, you know, it's, it's history. And history is so heartbreaking. <laughs> Let me ask you, if someone wanted to look back at the history of their own home to see if anything sorted happened there, how would they go about doing that? Okay, so... Um, New York City records are all, I think they're all in like the municipal building. They go back to like the 1700s. You can find out pretty much anything that happened on your property. All the homeowners are listed in a database called ACRIS. Um, you can find out who owned your home before you. And then there's also services, like people who will do the history and the research for you. There's a company called Brownstone Detectives, and they're really cool. They will, like, you just tell them your address, and they will go and do all the historical research for you, and they'll give you, like, a little booklet. Um, so that's another plug for you, Brownstone Detectives. It's a really cool idea. Um, so you could call on them, or you could just start, you know, researching yourself. But always start by looking at the property records, I suppose, to see um, the previous ownership. And um, hopefully, hopefully you'll stumble across something that will explain why your dryer keeps opening itself. <laughs> For example, that happened to me the other day. Is that right? Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, the other day, ugh, two things happened. It was like the dryer opened itself, and then something else happened. I think that the radio came back on, and then when I was nursing my baby, her in her room, the door was closed, and I saw what definitely looked like a black shadow under the the door sill. Which I know is just the lighting and like a shadow passing, but I was like, I don't like that. <laughs> you ever believe that something can follow you home? Yeah, I kind of do. Even though that's like the plot of Insidious or whatever, like, I think so. I do. I do. Again, you know, I'm not like a literalist when it comes to hauntings. So, you know, it's not just like a guy died here and there you go. Um Sure, why not? Maybe if you're particularly psychically attractive, it can follow you home and maybe it just can't get enough of you. I don't know. What do you primarily write about in your short stories? Are those stories all New York City centric? Um, they often are because that's like where I spend so much headspace time, research time. Um, I, I spend so much time inhabiting the world of historical New York that it just kind of creeps into my stories. They're not always, but... You know, New York's so huge and so endless that, um, yeah, they usually are just New York stories. I'm trying to think of, as I'm talking, I'm, like, going through my mind trying to think of the last one that, like, wasn't a New York City story. And uh, I think it was, like, a cruise ship story. It was kind of like the thing on a cruise ship. But um, even that was inspired by looking down into Red Hook and seeing, like, the cruise ship that looks bigger than, like, all the surrounding buildings and that hulking monstrosity and how menacing it was. So I can't get away from New York. <laughs> so this is your busy season, huh? It is, yeah. It's super busy, and I'm just always... I'm, like, on tenterhooks for the whole month, and I'm just, like... I. I obsessively check the weather and like refresh my email and it's it's awful and november 1st comes and i'm like oh thank god <laughs> i mean i love it it's amazing it's so much fun but it's also really terrifying because i'm like a farmer it's like that one crop and if there's like a hailstorm i'm like oh no 
there goes everything. <laughs> Ruined. Ruination. So October terrifies me for financial reasons, the most terrifying reasons of all. But is it year-round, though? People want these stories all long, all oh, year yeah. long, right? We're here all year. Um, we never close. Um, we primarily do, like, most of our business in the summer, like, between May and November. And then we do a, a seasonal ghost tour in December that focuses on, like, Yuletide folklore. Because Yuletide's a very ghostly time of year as well. So that's got the, the kind of um, pat title of Ghosts of Christmas Past, <laughs> just in case the connection needs to be further solidified um so we do that and then january february is like a really slow time of year for us and we don't really do a whole lot um we often will celebrate edgar Allan poe's birthday in january with a little tour and a toast um but then it's have you quiet. been to poe cottage i love poe cottage poe cottage is so sad because you open it you open the front door to poe cottage and it's so sparsely furnished and that little narrow bed where virginia died and that's like the actual bed where she died and you can just see them and you can feel like the wind blowing through the cracks in those little wooden boards that the house is made of and you can just see her shivering in bed there and like apparently her mother was like sitting at her feet rubbing her feet to keep her warm and Poe was like rubbing her hands to keep them warm and the family cat was sitting on her chest um to no avail you know Virginia of course she dies in that bed in the cold cold winter of 1847 and it's just so sad and you can see it, like, as soon as you walk in. Yeah, that home in oh. the Bronx. Mm, that home by Horror Haunted, yeah. It's so good. I love it. Well, give us the website. So our website is burrowsofthedead.com, and all of our tours are listed there. All the descriptions and the calendar is there. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Andrea Jones is the founder of Burrows of the Dead Macabre New York City Walking Tours. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.